0: So, Bob, I have a bunch of emails, and the list keeps getting longer and longer, so I, I'm setting a mission. I want to get to 11 emails today. What do you say, Bob? Let's do it. How many pages we got in back, backlog? 22 pages. 22? Okay. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist
1: and a professor. Who, who are you, Bob? I am your friend from graduate school. My name's Bob Gettle, and I want to get through 11 emails today.
0: <laughs> I like it.
1: Anonymous tier
0: Patron says, I'm a third year medical student in mm-hmm. psychiatry. Mm-hmm. I really love your videos and they've given me a lot of insight into myself and also how I want to practice as a future therapist. Do you give your clients your opinion on, your beha- on their behaviors? Do you tell them they have a certain attachment style or do you try to help them
1: to a point where they can reach these conclusion- conclusions on their own? Bob, what do you do? Earlier, I would have tried to lead people to that conclusion, and now I try to be more plain about it. Why? I think it's faster. Um, I think it helps me not fragilize my client. If they have a withdrawing style, then they have a withdrawing style, so be it. If they have a pursuing style, so be it. Um, I think folks with a pursuing style are more sensitive to that kind of feedback. As I understand it, back in the day in EFT, they didn't call pursuers pursuers. They called them blamers. And that's a bit of a loaded word, Man. so they changed it to pursuer. But then I heard a story about Sue Johnson. She's the EFT person. She's like, "Well, there is a reason we called them blamers back in the day." And I think what she was reacting to was therapists be fragilizing their clients and um, not putting, not being plain and putting cards on the table. Like so, but what I've noticed is that for pursuers, oftentimes any feedback about their behaviors, they're very sensitive to it, and they. Um, can feel hurt and angry. Um, so it's, so there's, um, I'm mindful about how I give feedback to pursuers. The word pursuing itself is not very, it's pretty neutral. So I, that one's usually okay. But if you, you know, well, that sounds like a criticism or yeah, you get kind of critical, don't you? When, you know, that can go either way. Sometimes people get really offended by that. And sometimes they're like, yeah, I guess I do do that. Don't I? So but um, with jars, don't tend to get, well, sometimes they could be a little bit squirrely if, if they're defensive. And you say, yeah, that sounded like your shield came up or like you're defensive or whatever. Sometimes people can get squirrely about that. Um, so, but my, I'd say my goal is to be as plain as possible because I think people are going to do their fastest learning that way. Why in the beginning would you do it differently and try to lead them Socratically to
0: that conclusion?
1: In part, ignorance about my model. And fear of screwing up. What do you mean? Like, I don't want to make a mistake, so I I err on the passive side. Yeah. Well, I'll
0: say for me, I was that way in the beginning of my career because that was the dominant message being given to me in graduate school and by supervisors, that you should never, ever, ever, ever tell a client what is happening. <laughs> in any way shape or form, you should never impose your perspective on a client. You should always work in their world and help them to see their truth. And that style can work for sure, but it's it's just one of the styles. And for me, if I'm a client, I want to I just want the therapist to tell me, "Now, I might not agree. I might Mm say, "Eh, I don't know about that one. Mm -hmm. And we can have a conversation. And as a therapist, uh, what I'll say is, I gauge the relationship first. And Bob, you're talking about that a little bit too. Like I would never call someone a blamer, for example, Mm -mm. if I thought it would ruin the relationship and they'd never Mm -hmm. come back. There's no point in that. But if the relationship is strong enough, I'll call someone an abusive spouse. I've Mm -hmm. said that to Many mm. clients I'll say mm. you are an abusive person. I won't mm. even say you have abusive behavior. I'll say you have a style of relating to your to the spouse sitting on the couch next to you in an abusive manner. That is a massively horrible accusation for many mm. people to accept. But if the relationship is strong enough, that's what has to be said. And mm. your idea of fragilizing I've never heard that word before, but I like it mm-hmm. that uh, rarely do I have clients be, exhibit fragility such that they're so hurt by what they're saying. The other thing is, is that if you have a proper conceptualization, it shouldn't hurt people's feelings anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't call someone abusive and just say you're evil. I would say this was modeled to you. You don't have another way of managing your attachment, reactivity. You, this behavior was normalized to you you're very anxious and hurt in those moments and you resort to this at times. And I know that you care about your spouse and we just need to label this as it is. You know, anyway, the point is, is that um, the Socratic method is fine and it's, and you could say it's passive or, but yeah, it, it just takes so much more time. And a lot of therapy for my style now is in part education about attachment style, about reenactments, corrective experiences. I want clients to understand what's happening. And I think it's sort of this old school notion and really infantilizing or f- fragilizing or top downing a client, you know, to keep the client in the dark, essentially, about what's happening. So now... Uh, The pros is insight absolutely helps, and one of the things I remember being told in graduate school by some professors is that insight does nothing. I remember being do you remember being told that in graduate Mm -hmm. school? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's like super dumb. If if you have (laughs) if you have uh, if that's your model, that's fine. If you're just like, look, my model is a postmodern model where I never interpret. I don't even go there in my mind. Solution focused people like this. Solution-oriented people, narrative people are like this. Uh, Brief therapists uh, tend to be this way. And that's fine. It's totally cool. And those models are awesome. And And I will live in that space sometimes as a therapist. But so much benefit has occurred when I say, let me explain attachment styles to you. You exhibit this because of this. And here is your history. And the light bulbs that go off in people's minds is so useful for them to say, whoa, because those light bulbs went off in me when I learned about attachment theory, about my own life. For many of the listeners, the light bulbs go off. So why would you and how would you uh, direct someone through Socratic, Socratic meaning you ask a lot of questions, and they eventually conclude that they have a preoccupied attachment style? I mean, how could that possibly... I mean, I guess you could do it, but it would take so long. And... You run the risk of making your client feel manipulated. If if the client detects like, oh, you're leading me somewhere, just tell me. Stop, you know, I, I clearly you have an answer to this question. <laughs> I do this to my students all the time. I'll be like, you know, uh, okay, wh- why would a client do this, for example? And then the students will say, well, how about this? And I'll be like, uh, yeah, maybe, but that's not really the answer I'm looking for. And then someone else answers the question. And then inevitably the, you know, the, the more rebel of the group will just be like, Kirk, just tell us the answer you're looking for. We're getting tired of this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, the pitfalls to telling people uh, you know, interpretations is one, I could be wrong and yeah. I could stomp on the truth and make clients feel like they have to agree with me. The other thing is is I might talk too much. This is something that if you're explaining a lot of stuff, you could spend a lot of time in the therapy session just yammering to the client. Mm -hmm. And the other worry is that they might Google it and stigmatize themselves. But Mm. anyway, next email. Anonymous patron Mm -hmm. from California. We're we're ripping through these, Bob. This is good. Mm -hmm. An honest patient from California, listening to your podcast makes me realize how much I would benefit from therapy for what are probably some deep-seated attachment injuries. I want to work with a therapist long-term, but I can't afford it. My current employer extended the number of sessions for our employee assistance program from three sessions to six sessions. I would like to take advantage of that opportunity, but how realistic is it to say, I would like a corrective experience in six sessions, please? If I do contact a therapist through this program, what advice can you give me on how to make the most out of limited
1: number of sessions? Bob, what do you think? I think you should go and use what you can and take from it what you can get. And it probably won't be long enough to develop a relationship within which a corrective experience can happen. I think those are both true at the same time.
0: Yeah, uh, agreed. I would... Ask someone so if you can if if it's six sessions or no sessions, then six sessions are better than no sessions. Yep. And when you go to someone, ask them to give you someone who can provide corrective experiences in the short term. If if someone reached out to me and said, Hey, this employee assistance program person is asking if you can provide corrective experiences in six sessions, I would absolutely know what they were talking about and know to say yes, because I can. Uh, they might be able to, to identify the right therapist for you. If you go to like a cognitive behavioral therapist, it's not likely that they're going to be oriented that way. But you can have a corrective experience in in 30 seconds. So it's, corrective experiences tend to compound over time, but uh, every little bit helps. So for sure. Um, and you might... Another little thing you can do is ask your therapist if you can record the sessions and listen back to them and and have kind of a repeat visitation to that space. Patron Emma from North Carolina says, hello from a fellow Hapa. By the way, Hapa is a half Asian uh, person, uh, usually in the United States. Um, I am another musician turned aspiring counselor. And I'm so glad to have your show as a resource. How do you remind yourself to have compassion when faced with people who may say things that are offensive or triggering to you? Recently, while watching a TV show, I realized that it was quite easy for me to dismiss a certain cast member on the TV show. It wasn't until he had a vulnerable moment on screen that I was reminded that his actions were partly a consequence of his trauma. I instantly felt terrible for judging his character. I would love any
1: tips you have to share. Bob, what do you think? Everybody has lapses in empathy. Uh, You probably get better with that with practice. I don't know. Quite frankly, I think it's unrealistic to think that you're not going to have lapses in empathy. You have an ego. Your ego is going to assert itself. And you you have blind spots just like me and Kirk and everybody else. So we all have blind spots and we're not going to do it perfectly. I guess as I sort of muse on this question, I think, well, what's wrong with that? What's, what do you tell yourself is wrong with your lapses in empathy? Do you tell yourself that that means you're going to be a bad therapist or that you're a bad person or or what? Um, anyways, those are my thoughts. Yeah, yeah, that's good. For me, as I always say, compassion
0: derives from accurate conceptualizations. It It's not reasonable. And what a lot of people do is, and counselors will say, okay, I'm going to try to be compassionate, and it will sort of force it. That's not possible. You can't say, okay, uh, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy, I'm going to have compassion for this person. How how do you do that? Uh, Well, the the path to a compassionate uh, heart is to see the person as they really are, which is a hurting, vulnerable, fragile human being. And when you see that, behind the veil of anger or hostility or bravado, then you have compassion. When you have a four-year-old who comes back from preschool and the day didn't go that well, and the four-year-old kid, she's like, um, I hate you for making me go to preschool. You don't get upset. You don't go like, you're a piece of shit. for blame. You know, Preschool is good for people. What's wrong with you? You're an ingrate. Uh, why are you being why are you blaming me i 'm doing what every parent should do. Every parent should drop off their four year old to preschool. I went to preschool what 's wrong with you? You would do that of course you wouldn 't because you understand how humans work, but somehow when people turn eighteen, all bets are off, and somehow like when people are hostile it 's like it means they 're evil you know th- they 're the same humans at four as they are at thirty five so uh, accurate conceptualization so and this is a matter of It's a practice, you know. They say like mindfulness is a practice, and accurate conceptualizing, prompting natural compassion is a practice. Once you do it, it just becomes automatic. When I watch reality TV shows, for example, I just I can't help but to see the pain and the fear behind the weird sort of behaviors that you'll see in reality TV, and then I have compassion. I don't force myself to have compassion when I watch politicians whom I think to be terrible for this country, I see the pain and the fear behind the silliness. (laughs) And when I see uh, someone on the other, you know, someone who votes on the other side of the aisle, who is getting in some kind of scuffle during a protest, I see the fear, I see the pain. I I don't see someone that's evil. And uh, I can't help it. You know, it, it it's not something I I have to force. It's I would have to force a negative point of view of people, and this is after twenty plus years of doing something. And eventually, your brain just gets it just becomes an automatic thing. You know, the same way that people who do mindfulness or meditation, or people who see the the world through the lens of the Bible or something, you know, you just become accustomed. You just can't help it anymore. So, set off if you want on a practice to make it habit. Also. A non, or a patron Emma, you want to heal from your own shame. When we see other people who are, I don't know, we have a, a good excuse to shame them, and we are ashamed of ourselves. We will use that as an opportunity to shame them as a way of distracting from our own shame. So, if you can heal from your own shame, then you're less likely to have that interfere with your compassion. Um, the other thing, honestly, is just growing up and, and maturing and becoming more differentiated. Uh, I remember my parents when I was young; they they were very forgiving. You know, I would be like, I have distinct memories of I'd be like ten or thirteen, and something would happen. Like, uh, I we we'd watch the Seahawks as a I'd, you know watch the Hawks as a kid. Did you watch the Eagles as a kid? No, I didn't watch sports when I was growing up. Okay, Eagles weren't so bad in the '80s. They they went to the Super Bowl. Anyway, uh, I um, and I actually was rooting f- for the Eagles in the Super Bowl, and they lost. Um, I remember to mm-hmm. Pittsburgh. I think anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, would watch football with my dad, and you know, Dave Craig or Jim Zorn or <laughs> someone would screw something up on the on the Seahawks. And I'd just be, I'd just be like, ah, Dave Craig fumbling again. You just terrible, you know, what's wrong with you? Pull your head out of your butt. And my dad would just commonly, and he was just as much into football as I was. And my dad would be like, well, you know, sometimes you make a mistake. You know, he would just be cool and forgiving. And I remember really respecting that. And as a kid, the younger and more immature you are, the more likely you are to have these kinds of knee-jerk, hostile reactions for a variety of reasons that I've already gone into. But as we age, as we learn more, as we gain wisdom, honestly, which does come partly with age, Mm -hmm. I I think it's just harder to see the world in that way, to see the world as like, there are people worthy of just harsh criticism and ridicule. Um, I, the older I get, the, the I think it's just kind of natural. And I remember when I was young s- seeing older people. Um, the other thing, of course, is finding mentors who you can look up to as people that will model this sort of behavior in the same way that my parents modeled it for me when I was a kid. Uh, patron Nika from Tampa Dear Doctor Honda and Bob, by the way, if you say that, you know, hey, this is for Doctor Kirk and Bob, it'll go into this document. Stacy reads the emails and she puts it in this document. And I think because I say that occasionally, that's why this document is 22 pages long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing. I've been going to therapy with psychiatrists for over five years. Mm-hmm. I've been diagnosed with everything from major depression to bipolar two and complex PTSD. After listening to your podcast, I became a lot more aware of my past traumas and embark in a journey of self-reflection with a family therapist. It's been wonderful and eye-opening. Understanding personality. So I think what they're saying is they were going to a number of psychiatrists and they were kind of spinning their wheels for whatever reason. And they went to a family therapist and and now it's very eye-opening for them. Understanding personality disorders and attachment theory has made a huge difference in my road to recovery. It's like it all makes sense now. I guess my only question would be, what makes therapy with with a psychiatrist different than therapy with a psychologist? What are some of the correlations and major differences besides medication that leads to recovery? Do you ever consult with a psychiatrist and work together with them, and so you think and do you think medication is worth it? So let's let's ask her. Let's ask the first question. Um, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and the other professions?
1: Well, psychiatrists have MDs, so they're medical doctors. That's the main thing. Um, really, what you're thinking about, though, I think is just training. Psychiatrists don't necessarily get trained to provide therapy. They get trained uh, in medical model and how to. Um, um treat people's bodies, some psychiatrists um are very good therapists. I'd say probably the majority of those have sought training over and above um medical medical training. I'd say that's the main difference yeah so. yeah,
0: included with psychiatric nurses are also medical right. people absolutely right. um but right, so a counselor or a uh, so a licensed mental health counselor or a licensed professional counselor or a licensed marriage and family therapist, these people are only trained to provide psychotherapy. Social workers are trained to do psychotherapy and a bunch of other things in the same amount of time. So when you're getting a counseling or a therapy degree, the entire degree is dedicated to teaching people how to do therapy and and almost nothing else for the most part. Mm -hmm. Social workers are taught to do therapy sort of, but they're also taught to work in hospitals and other kinds of venues. Psychiatric nurses and psychiatrists are taught uh, things about like bones and blood (laughs) and uh, the heart. You know, they're, they're, they're taught all the regular things that other medical professionals have to learn, and then they're given uh, education on psychotropics and medications, and then they're given education on how to provide therapy. So, uh, and and some actually are they choose not to anyway. And then you have uh, psychologists who are trained to give therapy to provide psychotherapy, but they're also trained to do assessments and research. Uh, so, but psychology degrees that they're doctorates and so they take longer. And so it could be argued that they get a similar amount of education as counselors and therapists to provide therapy. I would argue against that in my, from my anecdotal experience. And then you have coaches who don't formally have any education necessarily, but they might have education and they're not clinicians. Anyway, Wait
1: a minute. when you say that thing about psychologists and training, what do you mean? I'm saying that. Psychology.
0: So, t- to get a master's in counseling, social work, or marriage and family therapy, generally it's about three years of mm-hmm. education. If mm-hmm. you're going to a uh, accredited, you know, the highest accreditation uh, programs, mm-hmm. and for a psychologist doctorate, you are looking at probably minimum five years maybe six years. Um, on a on a good day, you're graduating in six years. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of education, it's <laughs> right? a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, so it, what they will say, what psychologists will say is, well, we spend, you get all the education of, say, a counselor gets plus additional ed- education and assessment and research and maybe a little bit of supervision and education. But what my anecdotal... Uh, Experience is that when you're getting a psychologist degree, your professors, like more than half of them might not even be clinicians, Meaning, meaning that they're just researchers or they just do assessments and they've never provided any therapy. And so your exposure to mentors and people that think as like psychotherapists might be kind of minimal. In fact, your the total amount of your professors who provide psychotherapy, it might be like 15%. So uh, the oper- and you're sort of spread out and scatterbrained as a psycho as a psychologist in your degree, because you're, you're being blasted with so many different things. And you're expected to be very very good with research and very very good with assessment and very very good with the professional side of our profession psychologists are uh, really held to a very high standard and psychotherapy in my experience kind of gets pushed to the side in some circles in psychology they even consider psychotherapy to be kind of like below them you know it's like uh, we're you know we do more special things not always of course there are plenty of psychologists that are fully into providing therapy for sure and technically i could be a psychologist if i just took the licensing exam and obviously i'm really into psychotherapy but but if you have a counseling degree or a marriage and family therapy degree all your professors sometimes by requirement have to be practicing currently as psychotherapists so all you're going to get is mentoring and talk and guidance and education about psychotherapy. You're not going to you're and you're not going to be clouded with anything else. Now, there are pros and cons to that. One of the cons is that counselors and marriage and family therapists tend not to be that great as great at with diagnosing and assessment because uh, there's just not a lot of time in graduate school to, to teach that. But anyway, so so for people at so patron Nika. You're saying, I went to a bunch of psychiatrists, and then I went to a, a marriage and family therapist, uh, and things went a lot better. That's probably just kind of random. Uh, plenty of psychiatrists, like, like Bob said, can be wonderful psychotherapists, but many psychiatrists lack the training and or they don't want to do it. There's there's plenty of psychiatrists who have just said, I don't want to provide psychotherapy. I just want to focus on meds, and, and that's my career. So... Uh, and you could go to a family therapist and have that person be terrible. <laughs> so it's usually a matter of the person rather than the profession. But if you're trying to, if you're rolling the dice uh, and you're looking for a, a psychotherapist, a counselor or a marriage and family therapist, would you would be reassured that that's all they did. <laughs> that's all they did in graduate school. That's all they wanted to do, by the way. And that's all they do. Uh, If you go to a social worker, if you go to a psychiatric nurse, if you go to a psychologist, if you go to a psychiatrist, it's unclear. But like I said, they could be some of the best clinician, you know, psychotherapy people in the world.
1: The longer people practice, the less there is a distinction between their skill levels. Yeah. So I got a friend, she's a licensed social worker, been a therapist for most of her career, so that's like getting towards 25 years. She's one of my favorite therapists. I really respect her and admire her. But she and I, in terms of our actual work over the last 20 years, is identical.
0: Yeah, totally. We do the
1: same thing. Yeah, Bob, for example,
0: has a counseling degree. I have a degree in marriage and family therapy. And Bob is one of the best couples counselors in Seattle right now because – not because of his degree or his supervision uh you know is being supervised but his latter career dedication to learning and training and uh getting experience and so yeah. uh so yeah it's just hard it, it's one of the terrible things about being a consumer of psychotherapy in our in our world you know if if you want to if you have if you break your foot there's one doctor you go to you know uh, what do you call them, podiatrists? Mm-hmm. Um, if you have something wrong with your tooth, there's one person. You don't have to go, well, should I go to a, this kind of professional or this kind of professional? There's, there's a dentist. You go to a dentist. And with our field, it's like we're just cobbled together in this ridiculous way. And the other the other problem, and I've said this before too, dentists don't have theoretical orientations. There's just dentistry. <laughs> You go to a dentist, not because, well, this dentist practice, you know, humanistic dentistry. And this dentist, like, there's just dentistry. There's just evidence-based practice, right? And with psychotherapy, it's like there's literally 400-plus different orientations that are wildly different. And so it just makes it really hard.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: but to answer your questions, uh, patron Nika, yes, I do work with psychiatrists. Of course we do. And yes, med- medical con- med- medication consultations are definitely worth it, particularly for certain kinds of things. Uh, now, medications, there's a, there's a fairly uh, minimal or shall we say um, conservative prediction of it working when you look at evidence for antidepressants or anti-anxieties or any other meds, they you tend to give it a try, you see the side effects, you see if it benefits, and then if it works, then great. If it doesn't, you try another one. It's a lot of trial and error, and it takes time, and you have to work with your prescriber on that. And there's a lot of people can have their lives changed permanently for the better when they find a good medication. So if you're chronically depressed, if you're chronically anxious, if there's something else going on, absolutely consult with a, with a prescriber who knows what they're doing. ADHD is another thing that medication can very much help with. Anyway, um, let's take a break, Bob. Sure. back. Let's try You're to power good. through. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, deserving listeners. As you know, I'm constantly recommending that people go to therapy. We all need therapy from time to time. One of the options available that is definitely worth checking out is BetterHelp.com. So if you're looking for a therapist, I would give it a try by going to betterhelp.com slash Kirk. Make sure you use the slash Kirk because you get 10% off your first month and it helps us out. I get a lot of emails from you saying that you're looking for a therapist. As you watch these videos, I know many of you have been motivated to find your own therapist, but I know it can be really hard to find a good one to work with. Like I said, one of the options available to try is BetterHelp.com slash Kirk. And you should know that this service is available to clients worldwide, which is amazing. I've been told that you can start communicating with your therapist in under 24 hours. You can message with your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And I've been told that it's often less expensive than in-person therapy. So go to betterhelp.com slash Kirk to get 10% off your first month of therapy today. All right, we're back from the break. Anonymous patron from Peru says, Is disorganized attachment style related to avoidant personality disorder? I find common issues in both, such as feeling that most relationships are hanging by a thread and a strong fear of rejection, but not knowing how to handle things so you avoid people altogether. Um, I did a deep dive on avoidant personality disorder. Do you know that much about it, Bob? No. Yeah. It's kind of a lesser discussed personality disorder, so I'll field this one. Mm -hmm. They are different. Avoidant personality disorder and disorganized attachment style are different. They can be comorbid, of course. Disorganized attachment is a product of severe terror and abuse when you're young And it results in the individual associating attachment, uh, uh, attachment, uh, how do I say it, Um, attachment proximity or attachment. um, When you when you're starting to get close to someone, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, you have an increased amount of terror uh, because that's what you were taught when you were zero through five is that the closer you get to the person that is supposed to provide you with security, the more scary your situation is. And so disorganized attachment is just deep, deep terror in the face of trying to get your attachment needs met. So that, uh, and that can cause a lot of different coping styles as an adult. Avoiding personality disorder is kind of much more specific in that You just have a deep, deep schema that you are defective and you're almost delusionally sure that other people see how defective you are deep down. And like Bob, for example, has a schema of defectiveness, but he doesn't have the personality disorder because he's not he's not delusional about. Uh, Well, do you tell me, Bob, do you, Mm -hmm. do you, you know, you, we've talked about this before. You have a schema of defectiveness, meaning that you believe that, and people out there, you might be able to relate to this where you believe that if people really knew you, they wouldn't like you Mm -hmm. and that you have to not really be your true self because no one would want to be close to you. And, and you're pretty sure of that, Mm -hmm. but correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. When you walk around in the world, you operate from that schema, but you also kind of know that it's not rational. Is that true? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So the fact that you know it's not rational means that you don't suffer from the personality disorder. You have the schema, Mm -hmm. but you're not further down the road. So in the same way that you can have abandonment trauma and be very worried that your spouse is going to leave you, but you're not delusional about what your spouse is thinking you're Mm -hmm. when you're when you're calm you can reflect on your abandonment trauma and say like oh you know i'm sure that colleen is not thinking that Mm -hmm. it feels like she wants to leave me right now but i'm Mm -hmm. pretty sure that that was just me being triggered and worried Mm -hmm. to the borderline personality spectrum person that's a hard thing for them to accept that the other person isn't actually actively trying to move away from you. For the avoidant personality disorder person, it's a hard thing to accept the notion that it might not be true that other people can see how defective you are. You know, avoidant personality disorder individuals will uh, one of the common presentations is they they'll believe that just walking around in the grocery store Everyone can see how ridiculous they are, the the way their hair is, their the way their face looks, the way their the the way they walk, the way they talk. Everyone they are convinced that everyone is totally hyper aware of just how wrong that person is, and and if you try to counter that to the person, who's, I don't think people care. And my impression of you is, yeah, you're a little quirky, but, you know, I don't think anyone is thinking that intensely. I don't think people care. I don't think people are paying attention to you in the grocery store. Uh, That notion is, is like very hard to accept Mm -hmm. for the avoidant personality sort of person. So, uh, uh, yeah, so to have disorganized attachment is as you approach you're getting your needs met of attachment security, you have a correlational increase of terror of, of just a deep fear. It's not like a, it might not even be attached to something. It's just like a bodily physical PTSD reactivity. Right, Bob? Oh yeah. 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 I'm agreeing. Yeah. Yeah. And then to have a deep schema of there's something deeply flawed with me and everyone knows it Mm -hmm. and there's no convincing me otherwise That's avoidant personality disorder. So they're really quite different. And, of course, you could have both at the same time, which would just be awful. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they are very different, anonymous patron from Peru. Any thoughts on that, Bob? No. Uh, They also ask, could you define disorganized attachment as feeling preoccupied but acting avoidant? What would you say, Bob? Feeling preoccupied. Do you feel like you feel preoccupied but act avoidant?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would say that that's it. You've got it all boiled down to one thing. But I'd say I do have a preoccupation, and I definitely do act avoidantly. Yeah. Yeah. Preoccupation. I mean, how do we want to define that word? Yeah. I would say I worry a lot. Very
0: frequently concerned with uh, distance and rejection and signs of even just being cold in a relationship. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, are are we good? What's going on, you know? Right, right, right. I Um, have that. Yeah, that's preoccupied. Acting avoidant. So, um, on one hand, my conceptualization of disorganized attachment, uh, feeling preoccupied, acting avoidant, okay, sure, maybe. But I I would say that that's actually a common uh, misconception that teachers will actually uh propagate which is that right. they'll they'll they you know describing preoccupied attachment can be pretty easy if you know attachment uh, theory you know at least halfway well and avoidant as well disorganized attachment is so hard to understand that a lot of people who don't get it and i've heard students will come into my class and they'll be like well kirk i heard from another professor that disorganized attachment is just when you have aspects of both, when you're both preoccupied and avoided. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> that is not true. Fundamentally, I don't even understand how you could mistake that. It's, you know, preoccupied, like we said, is when you're young, you learn in order to gain attachment security in, in tiny little bits, you learn that you have to be completely focused on what other people are doing and you have to assume hyper you have to uh, uh, adopt a stance of hypervigilance in the same way that if you were balancing on an I-beam, you know, 100 foot off the ground, you can't keep your eyes off your balance. You know, if someone asks you, hey, let's do some, you know, long division, you'd be like, I'm busy here. I'm, you know, if I take my mind off this balancing app, I'm going to fall and I'm going to die. It's a, that's what preoccupation is like. It's if I take my eyes off other people if I don't concentrate on them, and I don't manage them, and I don't try to make sure they understand what I'm going through, and if I don't uh, alert everyone around me to my emotional state, then I'm going to fall and I'm going to die. Which is very much how it feels. Um, to the avoidant person, it's well, I'm just not even going to go on that i-beam. <laughs> Forget it. I'm going to. I'm going to be wandering alone in the woods. Uh, why would I ever get up on that on that i-beam or that you know? tight wire act like that's just uh i don't i don't need people and so that's avoidant so it's pretty easy to conceptualize that disorganized will be characterized as like well you have access aspects aspects of both no that is not because what what people will read the tagline of disorganized is like there's no organization to the uh approach and so it's jumbled is what they'll kind of take away from that. it's It's a jumbled approach. Oh, that must mean they have both preoccupation and avoidant. No. Preoccupied and avoidant are much better off than disorganized because preoccupied and avoidant at least believe on some level that they can attain some attachment security at times. For the preoccupied person, they're like, if I concentrate hard enough, I can attain attachment security. And there will be brief moments of that. To the avoidant person... They might manage relationships such that there is occasional attachment security, just kind of randomly, (laughs) uh, because they give tiny hints that they need it. Anyway, to the disorganized person, moving towards attachment security has the paradoxical feeling of terror. As you become more secure, you become more afraid. Those are opposite feelings and because of the way one was raised growing up. And so what happens when you're in that state is you don't know what to do (laughs) because you want to get close because that's what your body is telling you to do because that's what the human mandate is to get close and secure to another person. But as you get closer, you just are more and more terrified and you don't even know what you're afraid of. You know, to the preoccupied person, they're afraid of being abandoned. To the avoidant person, they're afraid of being vulnerable. To the disorganized person, they don't even know why they're afraid. There's like, ah, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, if, if you have PTSD or something and you're just unbridled fear, you're just in that state of like, <gasps> and you don't know what to do. And over time, you have various different ways of coping with it, of just like, there's something wrong with me, I need to suppress this fear, or maybe I should try to avoid getting close, but I need, you know. And when you look at children, what they will, at, you know, at the 18-month-old child, what you'll see in a disorganized child is the the parent will enter the room to reunite with the child, and the child will stand up, and you'll see the child just kind of freak out in various different ways. You'll notice the child is freaking out, and the child will be like, you know, I want to run to mommy, but mommy is the is the devil but mommy is a security blanket but mommy abuses me and and is very scary and the child will be in this kind of vibrating weird state and sometime and in the observations the, the the child will will just break down in a in a crying state and like crawl back to their mom or or they'll run around in place or they'll literally freeze and they and they're just They won't go play with the toys and they'll look at the parent and they'll just be like, (gasps) you know, so translate that into a 45-year-old person, you're going to have some odd behaviors. You know, you're going to have some depression, anxiety, anger, hostility, passivity. You're going to have a lot of different extreme reactions as someone gets closer and and to the uh, security object, that person's going to be very confused as they get approached by this person with disorganized attachment, and it causes a lot of um, unmet needs. Am I describing this right, Bob?
1: Oh, God, you're just describing my last month of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? I sit in silence, and I have no idea what to say. I look away. I sort of glance up. I mostly look away. Um, I say to him, I don't want to talk just to fill the space with words because I've done that for years, vomit up words. But I don't know what to do. I don't know what I feel. I don't. I know I don't feel good. I know that. But I actually can't get words on it, and I, I actually have no idea. I'm completely disoriented to what what's happening in me or what I want, and there's an urge to escape. But I don't escape because at the same time, I also want his attention and focus on me, but I... I'm paralyzed. Right. It's really, it sucks. It's yeah. really uncomfortable.
0: The idea is, is corrective experiences. he is not abusing you. No. And he's not withdrawing. No. And he is caring and, attu- and attuned. Yep. And consistent and secure. And over time, your body learns, oh, I don't have to worry about this yeah. ever so slowly mm-hmm. or- over time. One could say that all your therapy you've been through... In your life has led you to the ability to be that vulnerable and that young, so to speak, in the face of another human being.
1: Yeah, that's one could say that.
0: Yeah. So that's very different from avoiding personality disorder, as we can see, mm-hmm. and very different from a characterization of feeling preoccupied, but acting avoidant. You know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, any yeah. other words on that, Bob? No, no, that was thorough. Yeah. (laughs) Anonymous patron says, our corrective experience is the only way to heal from trauma. Bob, what do you think? Yes. How so?
1: Well, I mean, if you could think of trauma as kind of like the way the body responds to something that's scary or dangerous. Let's say it's that sensing something dangerous, right? So when I think about this shit, I just think about like my fear of heights. If I want to get over my fear of heights, the only way to really do it is not to sort of think my way out of it. Well, you know, the Space Needle, that's a safe place because people ride that elevator all day long. You never hear about the thing falling over. It doesn't crumble like a piece of tin foil, and it's, you know, it's safe. And intellectually, I know all that. that. Yep, that's true. I believe all that. Yep. But if you take me to the Space Needle... I'm convinced it's gonna crumble like a piece of tinfoil while I'm standing up there. And I'll have visions of just getting it over with by pitching myself off the side so that I don't have to be terrified anymore because at least I'll just be dead. Right. It will have happened and it'll be over with and it'll be a relief actually. Have you have you been to the to the new Space Needle? No. Uh oh, there's any reason to go up there. Because <laughs> well, it's a glass. It's all glass. Oh no, it's, there's no fucking way. It's a glass right. floor. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I've seen those. I just watched a movie about I don't know why I watch these movies, but I watched this movie and it was a, a, a fair amount of it was about people that rock climb, you know, climbing up the side of a cliff. Yeah. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, why am I watching this? Why am I watching this? Was it's it a doc- me out. documentary? No, oh. you know, it was just a regular old story, you know, oh. like not even real, just all made up. But I'm just like, why am I watching this? I don't know why. And then I'm compelled to watch it. But, anyways, okay, so. Is it the one with Chris O'Donnell? Was it? Oh, it was, I know that one, K2. No, no. Um, uh, what was this one called? I don't know. A Lonely Place to Die, I think it was called. Okay. It wasn't very good. Anyways, um, uh, but here's the thing is, remember when we did this? Yeah. This was almost 20 years ago. Yeah. We, for about a month, you would come to my house and yeah. you would film me climbing out on my roof, which is about a thirty-foot roof. And you'd film me, and you you mic'd me up. And we what we were doing is making a documentary of how to get over fear of heights by having a corrective experience by climbing on the roof and looking down. Yeah. And what I discovered is um, looking up was scarier than looking down, and it took about forty minutes for my body to start to settle down. Mm-hmm. So it didn't have to go completely calm, but it like my my anxiety dropped about half of so if it was say a 50 it went down to 25 if it was a 70 it went down about 35 something like that right so it would drop and it'd take about 45 minutes or thereabouts and then we went to the aurora bridge and we filmed it and we were there for five minutes so i did 10 days on my roof every day you filmed a couple three of them and then we went to the aurora bridge it's about 120 feet And we had been there. Remember that movie you made Uh a long time ago? So we'd been there before and it freaked me out. And then after spending 10 days on my roof, we were there and I said to you, well, we might as well leave because it's not high enough. It wasn't scaring me at all because my body had had this corrective experience of being in a high place and nothing bad happening and staying there long enough for my brain to figure out that it's safe. So then we went to Rattlesnake Ledge. You remember that? Yeah. You filmed it. I still have a photo of that. Todd took a photo of that. It's me sitting three feet from the edge. For those who don't know Rattlesnake ledge is literally a 1000 foot cliff. You could walk off the edge. You're looking down at tall trees and there's no there's no fence, there's no railing, there's no yeah. safety anything. You really could fall off it. Yeah. And um I sat 3 feet from the edge for about an hour. God, it makes and, my hands sweat just just uh-huh. thinking about it. I know. And and so so I I and my fear was maybe a 35 out of 100. Now if we'd done that the first day, I would have been just panicked just freaked out i I wouldn't even have gone i wouldn't even gone up there and just would have skipped it but but if you'd made me go up there i would have just been freaked out and panicked and i would have had all those same crazy thoughts about like just want to fall off the edge and get it over with just because i know it's going to happen you know oh so, golly just, yeah so but if you do it enough times if you do it enough times your brain will actually they call it habituate or get used to it right yeah. just like you'd expect so a cre- that's a corrective experience yeah of going through the thing and discovering that it's okay yeah Yeah. So it's the same with trauma. It's the same with connection and intimacy. The corrective experience is being in the relationship in my case with my therapist. Um, Also with my wife though, of course, because there's lots of corrective experiences that come with that. They're not concentrated like they are with um, my therapist and she and I, you know, we react to one another. Whereas in therapy, things are pretty unreactive. I react to him, but he doesn't really react much to me. And um, as a result, I have a corrective experience of that and it's slow and I think it's helping. I'm 53. I'm not like I was when I was 23. I have a lot more insight. I have wisdom and some of that comes with age, but a lot of that comes with just spending four years every Monday at nine o'clock sitting with that guy and talking about what it's like basically to sit there. That's pretty much all we do. Yeah. So that's what I think corrective experience is, is the actual doing of the thing and not trying to think your way through it and imagine it and have it be, it doesn't, that doesn't help.
0: Yeah, I I like it. It, So this is an integration of psychodynamic theory and behavioral theory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that psychodynamic theory is the corrective experience uh, portion and then exposure and habituation is the behavioral theory. Yes. And I consider them to be the same thing as you yeah. are. They're mm-hmm. they're broader in a way, but to uh, it, you know, exposure therapy is usually um, and habituation is usually uh, used or framed as something. What you talked about when you're on the roof, mm-hmm. y- you're afraid of heights, and, and you don't want to be afraid of heights anymore. And so right. you you habituate to heights by mm-hmm. slowly through prolonged exposure mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, and ramping up in intensity to the point where if you continue down that road, you eventually Mm -hmm. be able to like bungee jump or something. right? And it's sort of a weird uh, concept that most people don't understand. Like everyone out there, think of something you're terrified of, spiders, Mm -hmm. needles, Mm -hmm. heights, Mm -hmm. relationships. Your body – can habituate to it. Our our we are very adaptable people, but you have to do it in a very gradual way. If you're afraid of spiders and someone throws a spider on your arm, that's going to be overwhelming fear and it's going mm-hmm. to make it worse. Mm-hmm. But if you start by looking at a spider on a TV screen, mm-hmm. you'll have you'll have some anxiety, but you habituate to that until the point where you can look at any spider on a TV screen and it doesn't bother you. Mm-hmm. The other ramping up in, in intensity, those also get reduced because mm-hmm. now the vision of spiders doesn't trigger you as much. Now you can look at a real spider across the room in a cage and have that be also triggering to you, but not as triggering as it would have been if you hadn't done the TV screen. And you know, you just eventually, eventually get to a place where you can literally have spiders mm-hmm. all, crawling all over you. And most people are like, no, 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 no. Mm-hmm. That's crazy talk. Mm-hmm. It's true. The reason why you can't smell your cat litter box but every visitor to your house can is because of habituation. The reason why you can wear pants and shoes and glasses and a ring and not notice it is because of habituation. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyway, so that is exposure and habituation and behavioral theory. And then corrective experiences is, is... reparenting yourself essentially then that's doesn't necessarily overlap overlap with behaviorism, but the part of it of through a corrective experience like you're having in therapy, you habituate to being close to someone you habituate to the vulnerability such that you don't have that terror anymore. Mm-hmm. but the corrective experience in addition to that which, which is not necessarily behavioral theory is being is internalizing the love and security and the attachment theory. So there's definite overlap there and and I agree. So the anonymous patron you ask, you know, are corrective experiences the only way to heal from trauma? The answer is yes, if we expand corrective experiences um, to include exposure therapy and habituation, which which um, we will do here. Mm-hmm. Um, so other going on here. I've had right. traumas from my child but actually I just wanna <laughs> chime in about we've talked about this before, uh you know, it was I believe 2002 or one. And I was given a video camera by a family member because I couldn't afford buying a video camera back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I thought, Ooh, new toy. Let's, you know, let's go for it. And, and uh, I made a, a fictional movie. Mm -hmm. uh, And it was an, it was a total uh, experiment to see Mm -hmm. if I could create something. There was no script. I was Mm -hmm. basically just kind of piecing together these scenes and, Mm -hmm. Looking back, it's just like, why did I make that story? Because it was it was a story about uh, sexual assault and trauma. <laughs> and, I mean, maybe that was just what was on the brain of, you know, talking with so many clients about it. But but it was a terrible uh, movie, but it was um, produced, I thought, you know. Uh, I was impressed with my ability to do sound mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. color and, you know, framing and directing. And anyway... And there was a real gun in the in the movie because Todd had a you know an actual gun.
1: <laughs> God, I don't remember that.
0: Oh yeah, so I think I had him act like he was going to kill himself, but then he gets distracted with something and he stops, <laughs> and he starts looking at flowers. It's a very weird artsy movie, anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, but the other thing we were doing back then was you were going to make a I guess like a webinar or, or something. Or a DVD of an instructional video Mm -hmm. of how to do exposure therapy. Right. And for you, it was about heights. Heights. And um, I had limited equipment at the time. I was actually using for audio because you were on the roof and I was filming on the ground. And so I gave you a mini disc player a mini disc that you could record on mm-hmm. if you remember mm-hmm. uh, for people that remember mini discs but anyway uh i just you know i just it's just a funny thing to think about mm-hmm. um what we what we were doing it was Do it's kind of that no i'm i don't have any i have that i have that film i made which you i'll never show it yeah it, i'll never oh. show it to anybody it's it's terrible but mm. but yeah and i don't have the um i don't think i mean i could look for no. the for the footage but yeah. um anyway Uh, Going with the email, I've had traumas from my childhood that still impact me today, which I'm talking about in therapy. I've heard you mention that corrective experiences can alleviate the reactive response associated with the traumas. However, I can't imagine creating these scenarios in adulthood. Can you please further define corrective experiences? So, wait. Do you understand what this question is? I think so. Um, So I've had traumas in childhood. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in therapy. Mm-hmm. I already mentioned that corrective experiences can alleviate the reactive response associated with these traumas. However, I can't imagine recreating these scenarios. Oh, okay, so I, I think what they're saying is it it's terrifying to think about recreating these scenarios in in adulthood. Can you uh, please further define corrective experience? So I, I think what I could say to this is that you know recreating scenarios in adulthood. So corrective experiences and exposure, like I said, there's overlap, but they're not exactly the same thing. So, um, it, if you say, for example, for we'll just take Bob for example, he was abused as a child, and the exposure therapy that he's going through, if if that's how we're going to uh, you know, phrase it, doesn't involve him being abused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It involves him being close to someone that is above him, like a father. Mm-hmm. And that, and he's being exposed to that fear and that closeness and that attachment and, and that relationship. But he's not being abused in the process. So mm-hmm. you can have that exposure without being re-abused, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, is that when you do... Uh, engage in exposure therapy. Typically in therapy, we call it imaginal exposure, which is mm-hmm. you you talk about what happened in the past. Mm-hmm. So you're exposing yourself to the trauma by telling a story that you went through. And by the way, you have to do various different steps before you go into exposure. And a, a good trauma therapist will, will be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas corrective experiences, I would define uh, more specifically as fulfilling unmet attachment needs. Um, but anyway, uh, I want to race through, Bob. Let's go to Anonymous Patron. Oh, right on. Uh, an honest Patron, I have begun mental health counseling program online. I really want to work as a counselor. Mm. I've put off graduate school due to having a felony drug charge as a young adult. I was 20 years old at the time. I'm currently 40 and have been sober since. Mm-hmm. I have returned to therapy to help work through my challenges that stop me from feeling worthy. I am looking for some type of advice to navigate the challenge of having a felony. It has been a very difficult label and has been a source of confirmation for me that I am deeply flawed and undeserving. sounds Mm -hmm. like some of that defective schema. Mm -hmm. I almost almost wonder if a mentor who has successfully navigated obtaining licensure despite a drug felony would help me. I think I'm looking for advice or maybe reassurance. Bob, what, what do you say?
1: Advice, reassurance, yeah. I think you're right. I think what you're wanting is some reassurance that it's okay for you to pursue your dream. I hope that you do. I'm just imagining what you would bring to to what you have to offer that I don't have to offer, that Kirk doesn't have to offer. And that is uh, a felt, a lived experience of something um, that um, has connected to it deep shame. And I'm just imagining what kind of care and empathy you could offer to somebody who walks into your office, who has their own experience of deep shame. You've chewed that dirt. You know what that's like. Right. So I'm just imagining the good you could do because of what you've been through. I don't see it as an obstacle at all. I, I get that the world is. So if I were you, I'd be really choosy about who I told. Um, And I wouldn't just mention it because the world is a judgy place. It isn't necessarily safe to be that candid. There are lots of people I'm sure in your life who are safe and for them and with them it's it's good to be candid but um, if you're asking about nuts and bolts, how do I navigate the world of you know the organizations, the licensure board or the graduate school or whatever it is and i don't I don't actually know anything about you know i mean it's nobody's business on the one hand. I don't know if they'd go looking on the other hand I never heard that having a felony charge will interfere with me getting a license I, I don't think that's true but I don't really know
0: no I I'm fairly positive that I mean I don't even know if they do a background some, sometimes yeah. a job will do a background check yeah yeah um but yeah so I agree with everything Bob is saying and I agree with you that you could get a mentor uh it might yeah. be hard to find one honestly mm-hmm. in, in with that specificity but if you can find one for sure, mm-hmm. uh, the fact is is a lot of therapists have felony records. Uh, therapists are not abnormal human beings, so uh, there's a there's a fair amount of of people in the United States who have a, a felony in their past. Particularly mm-hmm. if you go back far, you mm-hmm. know, farther in the past. A friend of mine, actually someone you know, uh, Bob, uh, mm-hmm. who he is a lawyer and he has a felony in his mm-hmm. past. The felony is kind of ridiculous and honestly a drug charge is, is pretty ridiculous too uh, mm-hmm. so i mean if any profession is going to not take it that seriously it's just like yeah i was caught with a bag of weed or mm-hmm. i you know i w- i sold ecstasy mm-hmm. 20 years ago at a party and i i got a felony charge i imagine most therapists would just be like a, like that's not even really a crime <laughs> yeah right um so uh Whereas if you had a felony murder or something, obviously, they'd have a different kind of a stigma. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you probably have classmates in similar situations. So I I don't think, like, there's something really that differently about you. And this is a broader topic that I have only recently in the past five years really understood uh, is that there are a lot of therapists – Who are in training, who are hiding various different things because of massive stigma, Mm -hmm. felony charges, obviously, but also past drug addiction or current drug drug addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Being working class is another thing that I find that trainees and students will hide because there's this assumption like, well, you're in graduate school to become a therapist. You must be at least middle class, right? And sometimes there's an assumption that you're middle class and that you're not even upper class. And when mm-hmm. I ha- when I open this discussion up and and you know create a safe place for people to talk about it, both upper class and lower class people will say I'm hiding who I really am. Mm-hmm. You know, the upper class people will be like I feel like I can't mention the fact that my husband is a multimillionaire mm-hmm. and and retired already at the age of 32 and neither one of us need to work <laughs> and i and so when you when you all talk about like student loans and stuff like i kind of go along with the question but but actually i and i feel guilty and and terrible about myself mm-hmm. the lower class people will hide their past as well mm-hmm. and they and not only just being working class or or living a life where no one in your family was went to college and this kind of thing, but also like homelessness or, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I've had, I've had students who once they got to know the group or me well enough, they'd say during graduate school, I was sleeping under a bridge because mm-hmm. I was homeless and my life was in shambles or a client or uh, trainees who were in gangs. I've had students who were in full on violent gangs when they were a teenager um Other kinds of things that graduate students will hide are divorce or religion or being republican there 's mm-hmm. a lot of things that people hide so the fact that you 're insecure about your felony uh charge in the past your felony conviction in the past you 're in a you're in a there 's a i would venture to say most of your classmates are also hiding something mm-hmm. <laughs> um but also like you know as Bob says. What a wonderful thing that you will have in it. you know the client or the trainees that were in a gang in the past, obviously they're much more aware of what it's like to be in a gang when they have a client that's in a gang like boy, mm-hmm. do they know a lot of different uh, stuff that we wouldn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, going on with the email, thank you for all the information and honest discussion you, Umberto and Bob share. Mm-hmm. I feel like I have some of the same challenges Bob has in the disorganized attachment sense when he talked about never knowing things he knows and not feeling safe. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really very deeply knew exactly what he was talking about. It's a feeling that is hard to put into words, and he did an amazing job sharing and identifying what that deep, dark, frightening place is like. Any response to Anonymous Patron there? Thank you. Yeah. Marie from Canada. My partner and I have been dating for five months. I feel jealous of his therapist. I think of her as another woman that gets to know him better than I ever will. Rationally, I know there's nothing unprofessional about their relationship. I feel very guilty about these feelings and don't outwardly communicate anything about it to him. But I have a, that tiny feeling of hurt every every appointment he has with her. I frankly feel ridiculous. Is this common? Bob, what do
1: you think? I don't know. I, I, I can imagine if it's not common, it's not like the rarest thing in all the universe, 'cause you know your partner does share really probably a very intimate connection with um that person though they're probably more like a aunt or a mother or sister than like a rival lover um that's probably more the transference than anything else um i I guess the other thought I had is maybe you should get that card on the table, just mention it, just talk about it right like yeah what a what a possibility for intimacy there is there. There's nothing bad or wrong with it. Yeah, right? It's not like you're a bad person just because you find yourself having that kind of insecurity and jealousy. Um, obviously, your your partner means a lot to you if you're having those feelings. You really value your relationship and want it and value your partner and want them. And that's, that's lovely. Right. Yeah. yeah. The only thing I'll say is
0: if I had a tip, it would be to do what Bob is essentially saying, which is to increase the attachment security with your partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are feeling threatened by that, it's probably a sign that you could do with more attachment security with your partner. Mm -hmm. Uh, One more, Bob. Patron Mm -hmm. Kate from Boston. Question for you and Bob. I listened to your deep dive on narcissistic personality disorder, and wow, thank you for that. I used to be in a relationship with a person who fits several characteristics of narcissistic personality disorder. He used to rant to me daily about the stupidity and ineptitude of everyone he worked with. He believes that he is smarter than everyone and he can do their jobs better than they can. However, he actually is really smart. So I was wondering if you could elaborate more on people who exhibit a sense of superiority when it's actually justified in some ways. Is it still considered narcissistic if what
1: they're claiming is true? Bob, what do you think? I think that what what stands out to me in what you're describing is not that he is smarter than the average bear, but that he has to demonstrate that—that's what stands out to me. And there's something that makes it important to him to for you to know, for you to see, maybe for you to validate that he's much smarter than everybody else, even if he is, even if he went to MIT and everybody else, you know, didn't. Um, um, his need to demonstrate it is what stands out, not its veracity, right? There's nothing wrong with recognizing
0: your superiority, which is something that we have a really hard time with in our society, but it's very, very dumb. Bob is a very good listener, and he knows it. Bob knows that he is superior to most others regarding how to listen, correct? Uh, I don't usually think in those terms,
1: but if you say it, yeah. I mean, if you're going to say it, if you're going to say, well, is that true, Bob? Yeah, it, it is true. Yeah. I am a better listener. I've been doing it for a long damn time. Yeah. But you, but yeah. it's funny that,
0: you know, you kind of cringed as you said it and then you oh, have sure. to say, Well, I've been doing it a long time. We have such we're we're so busted up yeah. about uh try, you know, appearing narcissistic that yeah. we can't acknowledge yes. an obvious truth. Right, right. That yeah. regardless of how you got here, Bob, you're superior in your listening abilities. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am a good podcaster. Oh, you are. I am superior to a lot of other people as they try to start a podcast. Mm -hmm. I feel the need to caveat that with I'm not superior to all the other podcasters that are successful out there and all the Mm -mm. radio people, but you can just say that you're superior. It's okay. There's nothing, it's not narcissistic to acknowledge reality. Uh, It's only a problem, as Bob says, if you use it, if you use your superiority as a narcissistic veil yeah. to cover up your deep insecurity right. or, or you use your superiority to put others down to elevate yourself. Right. So it it's fine for someone, patron Kate, uh, to say, oh, man, that person, I mean, I do this all the time <laughs> at my university. I don't understand what that person is doing. I could do their job better. I've been working at Antioch for 25 Uh, years-ish. Working at a university is a very particular set of skills that you cannot train, you cannot learn. It takes time. It's a very weird organization, I find. Working at my learning curve has been very, you know, it takes a long time to learn stuff being a a university administrator. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's nothing wrong with being a, a coworker and going, man i could do such a better job at that mm-hmm. than that person but if you're just screaming and ranting and it, it's often and you're making other people feel bad or you're you're sort of like exaggerating it in other people's presence or something i don't know then and it's a reactivity to your own insecurity obviously which is usually what's going on then we're talking about something that not only it comes from a place of suffering for the individual, but produces a lot of suffering around them. So if you acknowledge your superiority, and it creates no suffering for anyone, then you're probably not in a realm of narcissistic personality disorder. But if your superiority is a reaction to your suffering, or you know, you're pointing out your superiority is a reaction to your suffering, or makes other people suffer... Then we're talking about a, a potential pathology there. Anyway, I don't know if I like that answer, but I, I'm going to stick with it. Sounds good. How did we do? We did good. Um, we did not get eight? to all of them, but something like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's only two more left that I had hoped to get to. Are they short? Um. But, well, let's see. One is short. Let's so, do the short one. Patron Manuel from Germany. He says, "My girlfriend is about to see my therapist's wife as her own licensed therapist. My girlfriend is about to see my therapist's wife right. as her own licensed therapist. Do you have? Do you? Do you? Do I have to be aware of any possible countertransference or privacy issues, Bob? What do you think?
1: I don't know. What do you think?
0: <laughs> well." Uh, Patron Manuel, you don't have to be aware of anything because it's not your responsibility. Right, right on. Um, but you're free to voice your concerns. Yes. So yeah. uh, it's up to the therapist and uh, the. So the two, the two therapists are married. Yeah. And they're and they're treating uh, uh, individuals that that are related to each other. Right. And the risk is that the married therapist will violate your privacy, violate your confidentiality i'm guessing patron manuel that's what you're concerned about and you know just bring it up just saying like hey just want some reassurance that you're not talking with your wife Mm -hmm. about me because i feel like that would be a violation of my confidentiality or Mm -hmm. if you wanted to which honestly would be also totally rational i want you to talk with your wife Mm -hmm. (laughs) about this treatment because i want the two of you to coordinate your Mm -hmm. treatment of the two of us because Mm -hmm. that would really enhance things so whatever you want patron manuel and your partner your girlfriend then you know think about that what do you want how do you what do you both want and talk about it with both your therapists that should be all out on the table it should be pretty obvious and and any good therapist will be able to have that conversation pretty easily Yes. yes all right well that does it for that episode of psychology in seattle everyone out there please take care of yourself And feel free to email us if you want to because you deserve it.